Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, your short, sweet, and digestible guide to public policy issues facing the country today. I'm your host, Brian Phillips with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. For more information on today's topic and just about any issue that you read or tweet or post or hear about out there, check us out online at texaspolicy.com. Today we're going to break down a controversial, sometimes difficult, but critically, critically important issue of gender modification, particularly in children. I'll admit, if you'd asked me about this about a year ago, I probably, um, I probably would have thought you were referring to something on the fringes of science and medicine. But issues dealing with gender dysphoria, particularly in children, have exploded in recent years. And while some countries in Europe have been trying to wrap their heads around it for a while, there are very few guardrails on public policy in the U.S. And of course, we can't just debate what's best for the kids. There's always the politics inject- injected into these things, it seems. So we'll deal with that today, too. Here to help us break this down is Dr. Quentin Van Meter. He's the president and longtime member of the American College of Pediatricians. He is a proud graduate of the College of William and Mary and received his MD from the Medical College of Virginia. Now, I'm not going to go into every detail of his bio because that would take quite a while, but suffice it to say that Dr. Van Meter has a long and successful career in pediatrics, maintaining academic affiliations over the years. He completed 20 years of service in the Navy Medical Corps, retiring as a captain. And since 2003, he has been practicing full-time pediatric endocrinology in private practice and is actively involved in clinical research. Again, I could go on much longer, but we'll stop there and we'll welcome Dr. Van Meter to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Excellent. Uh, And our second guest, uh, which is not usual for the breakdown, but we have a second guest today. We'll have uh, TPPF's Associate Vice President for Policy and Policy Director for the Right for Families campaign, Andrew Brown. Andrew is a proud graduate of the Baylor University, and he has his JD from Southern Methodist University School of Law. Andrew has dedicated his career to serving vulnerable children and strengthening families through community-focused, liberty-minded solutions. As an attorney, he has represented children in the child welfare system, advocated for the rights of parents, and helped build families through domestic and international adoption. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks, Brian. Now, we're going to start with a couple of questions for Dr. Van Meter. Just to, to, um, for our audience, pediatric endocrinology obviously is not a, a pediatrician. Uh, it deals specifically with uh, child hormone disorders. Is that right? That's correct. Although now, I just, still, I'll, I'll yeah, interject and say that as pediatric endocrinologists, we are still at heart pediatricians. It's it's the whole body and all the interactions of hormones in that body. And so it it delves into cross mixes with GI and neurology and all the subspecialties. So we have to be good general pediatricians in order to be adequate pediatric endocrinologists. Of course, of course. Just wanted to make sure for our audience that that they knew the difference that that you know your real field of study here is is obviously the hormone disorders. Um, but but let's start at the beginning. What was your interest in getting into pediatrics in the first place? Well, um, I think as a kid growing up, uh, we ha- I had a couple of jobs that went around the year: uh, mowing lawns and and babysitting. Uh, <laughs> lawn mowing was somewhat seasonal, and I inherited all of my older brother's accounts as he aged out. Uh, and I made you know, some good money doing that back in the day. And I found out I really enjoyed being with little kids, uh, you know, interacting with them. They are generally want to be happy and well. And I headed off to medical school thinking I was going to maybe go into ENT. And I realized very, very quickly that, you know, I really wanted to focus on kids because they don't want to be ill. They do everything they can be to be well, to get up and go outside and play. 
And unlike adults who, you know, dwell on 13 or 14 different medications for 20 different complications and joint pains and agony and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, man, I would just burn out real quick on that end of the age spectrum. <laughs> I think I'll stick with kids. Right. So, and, and Andrew, same question to you. Now, you didn't get into the medical field. You're, you know, helping on the, the legal and public policy side. Uh, what prompted you to get into that, uh, that industry? Well, when I was in law school, uh, my family went through an adoption that went south on them. And I had not really looked into child welfare much at all uh, as a career choice. But that experience really piqued my interest in, in that world. And I enrolled in family law courses. And our law school at the time had a wonderful clinical program uh, where we could actually represent children who were going through the foster care system. And so as a law student, I was working under the supervision of a licensed attorney handling these cases. And you know, the very first case that I argued in a real life courtroom was a termination of parental rights case. I was representing the kids. And when it came time for me to make my recommendation to the judge, I said that he should terminate this mother's parental rights. Hmm. Now, mom was sitting right next to me, right in front of the bench. I could have reached out and put my hand on her shoulder. She was that close. And she immediately just broke down sobbing. I don't think I've ever heard a person cry like this in my life. And as a very green law student, it really clicked in my brain the gravity of this system. And the fact that you know, as much as this mother had failed her kids, we as a society had failed this family and not getting them the help that they needed, not getting them the community to come around them during their time of crisis and allowing things to spiral out of control. Um, so really it was at that moment that my outlook changed and mm -hmm. I dedicated my career to strengthening families and keeping families together whenever possible and when it wasn't possible to build families so that kids can grow up in a safe, loving environment bit of an origin story there for your career, uh, Andrew. Um, now, Dr. Van Meter, the, at the core of this issue um, is, the, is, is what everybody has heard is this gender, is gender dysphoria, right, is this disorder. Could you, um, you know, briefly uh, take our audience through exactly what people mean when they say gender dysphoria? Well, gender dysphoria was a term that was coined by a real expert in the field, Dr. Kenneth Zuckerberg clinical psychologist uh, from uh, Toronto. He had had 30 years clinical experience dealing with young children who were brought to him from all over the place, uh, not just Canada, but likely from the United States as well. Uh, children who, who had issues with identifying uh, themselves as the sex opposite that they were. And the, the term for this was called gender identity disorder by Dr. Zucker originally. And it, he, it was listed as a disorder because it, it was not a normal uh, situation in, in, in mental health. A disorder is a specific aberration that you know, requires therapies and, and interventions. And that, that gender identity disorder held fast as, an, as the description of what was going on. It's basically a, a, a boy who uh, grows up in, in young childhood, mid-childhood, and believes that um, he is born in the wrong body, that he is really uh, a female after all, and likewise 
girls born uh, female who who sort of identify themselves internally as as male. And this concept of, of a gender identity to begin with was was coined by one of my professors at Johns Hopkins, Dr. John Money. He was a clinical psychologist. And he sort of pulled that out of the air. Gender was really before that time a linguistic term for, for nouns and pronouns in, in romance languages and in the mm-hmm. English language as well. So uh, he, he thought, ah, the gender identity is that internal sense of who you are as a, a sexually. Um, and he sort of made it up in his head. It sounded good and kind of stuck in some of his published books. Well, he got then transferred into gender identity disorder, which had been called uh, transsexualism in John Money's day. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that somehow uh, the brain was uh, of one sex and the body was of the other and it didn't match. And so uh, things happened, uh, lots of depression and anxiety. What Kenneth Zucker found was the real story was that there was depression and anxiety to begin with. And the, 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 the sort of mismatch, if you will, was the child's attempt to escape um, fearfully, uh, a fearful lifestyle they did not want to live. Um, and these were kids who had been traumatized by divorce, by sexual abuse, uh, by drug habits in parents, by death of a parent or sibling, uh, by frequent moves in the military, all, all these things that we call childhood adverse events. And, and the concept is that you know, the, the solution to my problem is to be the opposite sex. Well, you mm-hmm. can't change your sex. Sex is immutable. It's by, it's binary. There's male and female, but gender then in in these recent years can be a spectrum. You can be sort of eighty percent male, twenty percent female-ish, and then you can be sixty forty and fifty fifty and forty sixty, and you sort of slide around wherever you're feeling. It is a very subjective thing that is diagnosed by the admission of the patient. There is no measurable gender identity in a test you can do independently to say who is who or who's who's suffering from what. It's all the opinion of the patient. No doubt. And, and was the idea originally to try and when you're treating patients um, that had the disorder, it was, it was the idea to, uh, you know, in order to solve the issue or to cure them um, was to was to do what was to make them, you know, was to was to fix the issue so that they they, you know, aligned with their their born sex. Well, what the, was what was the resolution that they all, that originally people were looking for? So Zucker figured this out very early on, and he had incredible success in, in getting eighty to ninety percent of boys and about eighty percent of girls to comfortably re-identify, align their gender and and biologic sex. And he did that by addressing the undercurrent issues that started the mess in the first place. And that is what he did so successfully, published extensively. He, he was the great godfather of, of gender identity disorder in the literature. So I cited multi hundreds of times in articles and books, wrote book chapters on the whole thing. So mm-hmm. he, he held forth. And the problem is the ideologues came in from an organization called the World Professional Association of Transgender Health or WPATH. That had been previously the Harry Benjamin Society, which was uh, sort of a, a group of, of people who really grooved on the idea that you could change your sex and reduce hormones and surgery in adults and, and become a woman if you're a man and become a man if you were a woman if you wanted to. Um, and they, were, they had no scientific credibility whatsoever. It was just, hey, that's kind of what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do to my body. 
they had a network around the world, but this is pre-internet, where you could find surgeons and physicians who would do the hormone treatments and then, you know, mutilate the body to try to create uh, the opposite sex appearance. Um, all that stuff was underground. Uh, it was so, so disfavored by the general medical community uh, that they, they just sort of lay low and they changed their name to the to W path to sound really important and scientific. Uh, mm-hmm. When all they are is an, an advocacy ideologue group, that's that's what they do. They they go around the world and they get into government uh, policy making and they get their nose into state uh, legislators and and they they have a template of what to do to convince people that this is really absolutely a, a very valid diagnosis and it's not it's not a disorder anymore. They actually threatened Kenneth Zucker so badly that, to change it from being a disorder because Zucker was the head of the committee on this issue for the American Psychiatric Association, which does the Diagnostic Statistic Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the DSM. Um, and he, he was forced uh, to, to drop it as a disorder. He said, well, if you drop it as a disorder, all these suffering kids are not going to be able to get any therapy that they need because you have to have a diagnosis that of a disease in order to have a treatment covered. So you're basically erasing all therapeutic interventions covered by any insurance or in any health agency. Uh, if you if you eliminate the disorder, he said, you have to call it something. And so they they engineered this term gender dysphoria, which is not, not a, that that is actually the suffering that comes from from uh, right. being incongruent with your biologic sex. Right. Um, and, th- and that's why I mentioned, you know, if this is the suffering, then you want to resolve the suffering. And it right. seems like, and this gets into my next question. I want to get to Andrew's uh, new research that he's published uh, in just a second. But but to get there, this idea now of gender affirming healthcare. I mean, that seems to be in the exact opposite direction that, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Zucker uh, uh, initially found. This seems to be going, you know, headlong into, uh, you know, like they said, affirming the dysphoria really is what they're affirming, correct? That they're actually trying to relieve the dysphoria by affirming the incongruent gender. And they actually call that affirmation, which is crazy because what they're really doing is converting uh, a biologic male or biologic female into a persona of the opposite sex. And that is a conversion which is so... Uh, irrational and has been proven to be so disastrous from mental health in the long run. In the short term, these kids who you know wake up and say, "Oh, I want to do this. I want to you know everything will be great if I can just be the opposite sex." Um, when they are treated with pronouns and new names and new new appearances and welcomed in schools and encouraged in schools, uh, many times without their parents' knowledge, um, they f- suddenly feel very 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 much better right away because, gosh, they got what they wanted. I mean, they threw a mm-hmm. tantrum. Uh, they threatened that they were going to kill themselves because they're instructed to say that by the by the ideologues on websites that are, that are abound on the Internet. And so they say that magic hammer, I'll kill myself if, I, if you don't do this. Well, the parents are bullied, you know, beyond belief into, into going along with this fantasy. And the kid calls it gender euphoria once they get their way. And they kind of live in this fantasy world on the internet where they have suddenly celebrity and tons of new 
you know, kooky friends, all of whom have done the same thing they have. They, if they mm -hmm. girls get their breasts cut off, they love to pull their shirts up and show that on the on you know on, on YouTube videos, and they get they get giddy with glee over the fact that they are very powerful people. Suddenly, you have an adolescent who is wagging their the tail of the tail of the dog, and 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 the parents are you know completely devastated. The families are devastated. One parent might pick up this as an, uh, and it often happens in the cases I've been involved with. They play one parent against the other. The, the the mom or the dad says, "Oh, I want to affirm," and the other one says, "Not only no, but hell no." And then there, there, this goes to court, and unfortunately, in family courts, it it tends to go with the affirmation pathway because that's quote compassionate and will solve mm -hmm. this kid's mental health issues. Nothing is farther from the truth. I want to get I want to get to some of the. Um uh, some of the effects of the puberty blockers and all that in just a second. But Andrew, you have, you have published new research on this. You have looked at studies across the board. Um, and, and I, th I believe, you know, would you say that there is a consensus one way or the other on the effectiveness of these, these therapies and this, this gender affirming healthcare? You know, as much as the activists, WPATH, even the Biden administration this week, want to say there is no disagreement, there is no argument. The fact of the matter is there is no conclusive evidence out there that hormone therapies, puberty blockers, the various sex reassignment medical procedures that we're talking about today actually help children overcome feelings of gender dysphoria or the accompanying anxiety and depression um, that they feel as a result of that dysphoria. On the contrary, there's significant evidence and emerging research, especially out of Europe and the UK, Finland, Sweden, uh, places where they are much further down the road of providing uh, this type of um, care, for lack of a better term, uh, to children. Uh, that shows that children are physically and emotionally harmed by these procedures. So much so that Finland and Sweden have, in recent years, completely backed off of providing puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries to children, and instead prioritizing uh, professional counseling as that alternative to the medicalization of children. Um, and so we really dug deep into how this movement has progressed in both the United States as well as uh, in Europe. And really what we found is the U.S. is several years behind where Europe has been, and Europe is now retreating from where the U.S. is going. It's a lesson that we need to learn. It's something that we should not repeat the mistakes um, that have been made in Europe, where children have been subjected to these procedures and are now finding this actually can make things worse. Um, one of the key studies that came out of the British National Health Service found that there was actually little to no measurable improvement in the mental health um, experienced by children and, in fact, documented a number of pretty disturbing side effects that can come from these medications. Um, ultimately, what we're seeing is an entire movement of certain activist doctors, as Dr. Van Meter rightly said, who are effectively experimenting on children. 
Is that a fair characterization, uh, characterization, Dr. Van Meter? I mean, if there's no conclusive evidence that it that it helps these kids, other than what you mentioned, the short-term euphoria. I mean, is that what's happening here? Is that doctors are essentially experimenting on children, not knowing what these outcomes are going to be? Yes, it's actually a wide open experiment. It was actually in the style of John Money. He did that with infants and toddlers and also with adults back in the 70s at Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, he, his kind of concept was, I have an idea. Let me see. Let me do things to people and see what happens. Uh, you know, no informed consent, no comparative, no longitudinal you know, studies of any, any length at all. Uh, because when, when they actually finally reviewed what had happened to these patients, it was a disaster uh, ending in the, in the death of a real famous case uh, and, and very unhappy adults. Uh, and so this is an ongoing experiment. Uh, it, it is you know, saying, well, we'll go till we get here. Then we'll look backwards for five years and see how things look. Then we're going to go out a little another five-year period. In the meantime, they're recruiting in thousands of patients a year, thousands and thousands of patients per year in the 60 academic centers and now all of Planned Parenthood uh, and also some online services, one of them is just called plume, P-L-U-M-E.com. You ought to go there just to, it's an eye-opening experience. Um, you, you know, you can telemedicine uh, and get your, get your hormone shots within the, you know, the first visit. Um, this, is, this is a catastrophe. We're going to have you know, probably over a million plus children in the next couple of years who have started to harm their bodies. And then the truth will be out like, well, wait a minute, we're, we really have got a lot of very ill children and mentally they're, they're falling apart. And at 10 years into this, the regrets just start increasing exponentially. Um, there are now websites for regret people who've done this and regret they are coming together uh, in in large numbers and saying, stop, don't let this happen. We've been there. We've done that. Kids, just please stay away. Don't, don't even consider this in childhood. And so mm-hmm. um, it is an experiment. And they're just, they, they give what they call informed consent, but it's open-ended and say, well, you know, sure, yeah, you could possibly get some cancers, maybe. Yeah, sure, you might, uh, might get uh, heart disease. Um, yeah, so what, your lifespan is cut in half. Uh, but, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to die because you're going to kill yourself. And that's called informed consent. It is totally disingenuous and dishonest. It is basically putting people into an experimental mill and then counting the dead on the other side of the issue some 20 or 30 years from later. And when all the people that perpetrated this mess will possibly be long gone. Um, mm-hmm. And that that is just we, we will have ruined the lives of uh, easily a million children, if not more by the time this madness stops, unless we put the brakes on now. And to emphasize that point that Dr. Van Meter was making about the dramatic increases, um, some recent data out of the CDC showed that since 2017, the number of children and youth who are identifying as transgender has about doubled in the United States. I mean, this is a massive spike in children who all of a sudden feel like they were born in the wrong body. And one of the interesting studies that we came across as we were digging into the research was one that was done, I believe it was in Australia, where they tracked calls to gender clinics within the weeks following a major media story or a depiction of a transgender individual in popular culture. And what they found was a direct statistical correlation. When you had one of these um, major media moments around 
a transgendered individual, you see a spike in the number of children who are now reaching out to um, these gender clinics. And what the authors essentially theorized from that data was a lot of this identification is being driven by social media and traditional media highlighting and glorifying um, the transgender identity. Dr. Van Meter and, and Andrew, I want to get into some of the uh, legislation and things and the policies, you know, here in, in America. And I know a few states have, have started to act on this. Uh, but quickly, Dr. Van Meter, could you just tell us with, I don't know how graphic uh, these things get, but I think our audience needs to hear um, the effects of, of some of these treatments, these puberty blockers, these hormone therapies on children. Do you have kind of a high level description of kind of what, you know, a 12 year old body would go through um, being subjected to this kind of thing? Well, the, if you stop puberty at the very beginning, which is what everyone recommends now in the United States, it, this is not the protocol from Europe. They, they sort of modified it to say the second puberty shows up, you know, flip the switch. And the, the excuse is that it's a pause so that this child can then ponder for, for a little while if they really, really want to go ahead with all the treatments. Well, it's a, it's a fake pause button because you press pause, but you go right into the cross-sex hormones almost immediately. So it's an, it's an attempt, to, again, it's just, again, very dishonest. Stopping puberty stops the child from developing any, uh, the, the major second, what we call secondary sex characteristics, so that, you know, the, the genitalia of the boy will remain small, the, the breasts of the girl will not grow, and they are sort of in limbo. And in endocrinology, in our world, we, we see kids in our endocrine practice every single week, day in and day out, who are suffering immeasurably from being delayed in puberty or having started too early. And those are, those are the, it's the meat and potatoes of the endocrine world is the kids with delayed puberty, they're socially behind, they're ostracized, they feel inadequate, they can't relate to their peers. So we're now gonna induce this uh, artificially, but oh no, we'll solve it by immediately starting cross-sex hormones. Well, the puberty blockers stop the accretion of calcium into the skeleton, very critical that you, uh, in females in particular, but also in males long term, uh, the, the skeleton is depleted of calcium at a time where it's going, it can't bank it later on past age 25. You can take in calcium and vitamin D, but it doesn't, you know, get into the bone very well. All of the entrance of calcium into the bone is during the years of puberty. And when you stop that, uh, you really cause havoc. And so that there's that. There are also mental health issues, which in the population of adults who've used these medications to, to stall off uh, cancers and whatnot, there, there are you know, a large number, a significant number of patients found in clinical studies and also in post-marketing that there's, there are mental health issues with anxiety and depression that just burgeon when these drugs are used. Um, and, and then you introduce the cross-sex hormones uh, you know, it, at a time when the brain is supposed to be developed, the biologic body and the biologic brain are programmed to be ma male or female from uh, the moment those organs develop in utero. If, and, and so if you're an XY male, your brain is expecting to see testosterone at puberty. If you are an XX female, you are expecting to see estrogen at puberty to mature your brain, to help it go through all the things that it needs to do. And when you arrest puberty, you stop that. And then, unfortunately, you give giant jolts of totally inappropriate hormone to the body, and you end up with the cross-sex hormones causing 
physical appearance that can't be changed, incredible voice deepening and body hair increases in female, uh, biologic females that cannot be reversed. Um, you take the breasts off the female, she can't ever get them back again. Sure, she could have a, you know, an implant to look like a breast under the skin someday if she chose, but she can't breastfeed. Uh, which is the you know the purpose of the human adult breasts and females is to to be able to provide food for a baby, uh, and and all that is gone. If you take the genital structures and you screw around with them and saw them out and try to piece things together and plop them on the front of the of the perineum to so it looks like a male when it's not, those are not functional organs. There is no natural secretion. There is no uh, natural erectile tissue. There is no orgasm to be had. All you are taking away the, the pleasurable parts of an adult sex life and throwing them in the wastebasket and putting on costume pieces that don't work, that have no function whatsoever mm-hmm. other than to try to look like the real McCoy. And you can't explain this to to a child who, uh, who is so hell-bent on wanting to, to get their problem solved and, on, and just doing the gender thing will take care of everything. You are sterilizing these children. You temporarily sterilize them with the puberty blockers, but the gonads, if they're if they're blocked that way, never fully develop. And then you whack the body with high levels of cross-sex hormones, and that fries the gonads. And then if you you know to, to top it off, you take everything out: testicles and ovaries, uterus, fallopian tubes. All that is removed surgically uh, in the adult years, sometimes in the adolescent years. And you have an infertile, sterilized, unhappy, dysfunctional, not uh, adult who has no no ability to have an, a sex life as an adult. What are we doing? And Andrew, you you've detailed in your in your research uh, some cases of of uh, individuals. You know, there was one that stood out to me, and it was someone who had had uh, transitioning at nineteen and said, "I became a patient for the rest of my life," and he was. Mm-hmm. 59 at the time that he made this comment. It was really jarring. What what are states doing to to approach this, uh, particularly with regard to children and all of the, um, you know, the the I was going to say challenges, but really all the horrors um, that that uh, Dr. Van Meter has, has detailed here. Are states getting active on this? Are legislators starting to uh, or even at the federal level, are people reacting to this and trying to prevent kids from from being able to make these kinds of decisions? Absolutely. And it has really picked up within the last year or two. Um, and I think it's understandable because what Dr. Van Meter just described is harm. And everything in us as individuals, as parents, as members of a society, wants to protect children from harm. The question is, how do we do that effectively? And I think as we approach it from a public policy standpoint, we have to be clear-eyed about what's going on, not just focusing in on these horrific procedures and the resulting damage that's done to a child for the remainder of their life, but also what is leading these children um, to seek this uh, treatment, as well as what's going on in their families um, as they're wrestling. You know, I think this all comes back to what we talked about at the very beginning is this gender dysphoria itself is a diagnosable mental health disorder. It's something that causes anxiety, depression, 
great distress in a child who is struggling with it and very similar feelings in parents who watch their children struggle with these disorders. You know, I'm a father of two boys and Brian, I know that you're a new father and there's that thing that clicks in you when you have a child that whenever you hear them cry or see them in pain, everything in you wants to stop that pain. And so imagine being a parent of a child who is living in existential pain of not feeling comfortable with who they are, potentially being bullied at school, dealing with all of this really intense um, mental health struggle. And then somebody comes along and says, I have a magic pill that can make it all go away. I think a lot of parents out there would say, okay, yeah, give me the magic pill. Um, And in that way, I think many of these parents themselves are victims of these radical ideologues that Dr. Van Meter um, was discussing and that have kind of taken over this area of medicine. And that's something that I say because it's something that I think policymakers need to keep in mind as they approach how to address and protect kids. We have to protect kids, but we also have to protect their families. And there's many different approaches that are out there. I think the best approach that I've seen is what Arkansas recently did because they focused 100% on the medical procedures themselves and prohibiting the doctors from prescribing the medications to the children, giving the hormone therapies, even eventually escalating to surgery. Now, there's an argument to be made that, oh, well, the surgery doesn't happen until the child's an adult. When you look at the treatment progress, though, it is a step-by-step-by-step toward the surgery. And even just this week, WPATH announced that they were lowering the age at which they're going to perform various things. And now it's acceptable to have um, breast removal at age 15. It's acceptable for WPATH to remove the womb and remove the genitals at age 17. This is moving to younger and younger children. And so policymakers need to be laser focused on the procedures themselves. And to the extent that you um, prohibit somebody from doing something, you need to focus on the doctors who are supplying and performing these procedures. And Dr. Van Meter, while we have about a minute or two left, um, you know, to that point, what responsibility do doctors have to be more cautious, of course, with these kinds of therapies? I mean, is it, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people, I think immediately would be frustrated with the parents, but as Andrew's outlined, you know, obviously parents will do anything to get their kids to feel better. Is the responsibility here on the, the, the doctors? It's entirely on the doctors who, who pretend to get uh, true informed consent uh, to do things to these children. Um, and, and, you know, of course, they, they, they hide behind uh, a wall of, you know, prestige of, well, we, we're part of this professional society or that. And we've, all of the professional societies have taken the same single document and put a rubber stamp on it, essentially. They put a little bit of different flavor in it based on their own, you know, want to be, make it look individual. But it, it's the same core group of people who are the ideologues, who do not let anybody else say a word in public. Uh, we try and we get every avenue we can. We blog, we, 
but we cannot get published uh, in reputable journals. The journal editorial boards are all in lockstep because this is this is a new woke cause and everybody wants to be woke. Nobody wants to be labeled a, a bigot and a hater. And so uh, they just go along with, with the bullies that are in these organizations. And literally CME conferences over and over again have you know courses on how to do the transgender treatments. They do not allow anybody else into those conferences to speak. I have offered to put together a panel of international experts who've been in this in the in the in the business of this of evaluating these people and and said I will personally spend my time getting the faculty so that we can have a balanced presentation you guys talk uh, guys on our side of the issue will talk in front of everybody and they will see if when they hear what we have to say their jaws drop they said I had no idea my professional society said this is supposed to be what was supposed to happen. And they said they had all the research. And, uh, and when you find out that the research is so shallow and so inadequate and really shouldn't have been published by any standards of, of, of uh, quality that everyone else has held up to, uh, you, their, their jaws drop and say, oh, my God, I am so glad I talked to you. I always thought this was a little crazy. But, you know, when the American Academy of Pediatrics representing 67,000 members says this is this is the new new and we better get on board and every one of your offices needs to ask the child in, in front what is your gender identity uh, and and you know we'll have we'll have rainbow flags and everything all ready for you so you know this is a warm and fuzzy safe place for you and what are your pronouns here are mine okay that's what we're to be pediatricians are being told and they're falling into this false world it's it's like alice in wonderland they've gone down the rabbit hole it's not real uh it is a it is a it's a reflection of significant medical metal medic excuse me mental anguish that is not being addressed it's being painted over it's like you know putting a, a cork in a volcano and hoping the damn thing doesn't erupt mm-hmm well <clears throat> unfortunately that's all the time that we have for today but i really do appreciate both of my guests uh, Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who is a longtime uh, practicing pediatric endocrinologist, uh, and we've had Andrew Brown, who is the associate vice president for policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, on this issue. Um, I think uh, you know, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you know, Texas is looking at at um, addressing this issue in one way or the other coming up in the next legislative session. Is that right? Yes, Texas is, um, and. Where Texas Public Policy Foundation comes out is, like I said, focus on prohibiting the practice and avoid any type of um, unintended harm to children and to families. Um, We should not be taking a punitive approach toward these families. We need to be focusing on preventing the practice. Thank you both for being with us today. Again, this is uh, Brian's Breakdown. And if you want to learn more about this issue or any other issue you you read about or talk about, uh, just go to our website at texaspolicy.com. Thank you both for being on with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brian. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.